0: Welcome to After Hours, our new interview podcast series from Lady. I'm Laura McLauss-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. This past fall, I began recording a series of interviews with creators across many different fields. As a cultural historian, I'm interested in speaking with people who have impacted culture and society in one way or another. Some famous, some completely unknown, yet all have left their mark. This first interview is with Dwayne Michaels, a renowned photographer who has worked across a number of different genres. Art, portraiture, interiors, fashion, and advertising. He became famous in the photo world in the late 1960s and 70s for his innovative use of sequences, which are stories told through a series of photos, as well as his use of handwritten text on photographs. Sitting and talking with Duane was a great honor. As someone who has long been a fan of his work, it was wonderful to hear the backstories behind both his personal work and his fashion photographs. I met him in his Gramercy home, the stage set of many of his most memorable images and sequences. Several months after his partner, fifty-seven years, passed away. One part of this conversation with Dwayne that particularly stood out for me was how he has never kowtowed to conventions about how photographers should act and what their work should look like. Instead, he has created the ideal life for himself and produced the works he was inspired to. For him, this meant no studio, and usually only one assistant. Just working from home on his personal work and taking on large commercial jobs as a method of experiential learning. At eighty-five years old, he is still producing new work across a range of media. Last summer he had a show of sculptures, and he has been making films for the last few years. Recently, and hudson published a new book collecting together half a century of his portrait work. On our website, ladyworld.tv, I have put together a slideshow of his photographs, including many he discusses during our conversation, as well as links to many of the books and projects he mentions. I hope that even those uninterested in photography will be inspired by his life and memories. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to sit Please. down with uh, me. A lot of your work has touched on your childhood and well, your family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about well,
1: that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I was in, m- we were at the bottom rung of the social scale in the Keysport. If you were a skill worker, you know that place. The bottom feeders. And, uh, but the whole idea, I was always interested in art and some I, my instincts were toward art, there are some people have kids who have sports instincts and love to play football and others that and have musical instincts, but well, mine were somewhere in that area called art. And in high school I went to classes at the Carnegie Museum and then the Carnegie Tech they had for precocious kids which was great. And I did everything on scholarships and I was, the idea always was that I loved adventures. I used to read a lot of stories, and they were usually about sailing ships in the Pacific. And there was always a doldrum, and everybody was dying, and and pirates. and I was always the captain boy. (laughs) And I loved the idea of having adventures, and I still do. Life is a huge adventure, and my life has been just a series of adventures. And uh, I came to New York because I love books and magazines, after having been in the army for two years. Which was the worst time of my life. I was during the Korean War. I, I was a, a second lieutenant in tanks. Likely, I was sent to Germany because I certainly wouldn't have made it through Korea. I was 21, going on 12, and uh, then I just I went to Parsons for a year after the army because I didn't know anything about what do you put your foot in the door. What what you know? And that was a waste of time, so I'm a out. And I worked at Time and while I was there, I found out you could go to Russia, and it was the height of the Cold War. When I was fifteen, I'll back up. I went to Texas. I read the McKeesport Daily News. You could work on the wheat crop, and that was a amazing, wonderful disaster. That was a big adventure, and I'm still having adventures. But so I, while I was at Time Inc., I found out you could go to uh, Russia. I, we weren't talking to them at that point, and. I it cost a thousand dollars and I didn't have a thousand dollars, but I, I ate sandwiches for six months and I borrowed a camera and and I went and the trip changed my life because although I was 28 at the time, I had planned to be a photographer. I had taken photographs. Well, so I, I took one photo of course, didn't to anything. But I found out what I should have been doing. I I learned how to say in Russian, "May I take your picture?" and I stopped these Russians. And I never would have done that in New York. You know, in New York, you get a mouthful of teeth, and, uh, fist. Anyway, it was the trip chip, chip really changed my life, and I've always grabbed any, every opportunity came my way, and uh, that's carried me a long ways. And even today, I've never. Li- I always liked doing something different. I, but I came to photography with a fresh eye because I didn't come up through the photographs and because I was a big reader. You know, it was natural for me to start telling stories, my own stories, not somebody else's. So in those days, it was a big no-no. Setting something up was considered, you know, not photography. You know, uh, photographers walking down the street with a camera, reproducing observable facts. Hopefully, there's some curiosity. It will make the photograph interesting. But I, I turned photography inside out in the sense that, for me, photography was in my head, not on the street. And I realized suddenly that you know whatever came to my mind, I could, if I could do it, I could do it, and that was so liberating. So rather than being trapped in photography, uh, you know, I freed myself from all the givens. And so the first show I had, a lot of people were confused by it because, you know, what is this? You know, setting up six pictures and making a story happen. And then I could talk about metaphysical issues, I could talk about dreams, I could talk about the contents of my head. I didn't need you know, to go to Africa to photograph people, in costumes to take pictures. And then the responsibility was enormous. But the question was, how do I make a living? I was very lucky. I went out with my little portfolio. And I, you know, I didn't know anything, literally anything. I didn't even know you could have an assistant. I was so naive. And uh, I went to Harvest Bazaar, and Henry Wolf was the great art director at that time. Uh, I, I made a magazine based on my trip to Russia. My favorite magazine is Du. You know the Swiss mm-hmm. magazine? I love that magazine. I had 560 copies, <laughs> and I sold 500. I still have 60. But they would do a whole issue on a single subject, and really well. And so I did a book called magazine called Contact. And my idea it was contact with life, contact with literature, contact with art, theater and all that kind of a magazine. And uh, I made a whole issue on Russia, and so Henry said to me, well where, who took the pictures? I said, well I did. He said, well you should be a photographer, and wouldn't hire me. And then I took my little portfolio to Solstein at the Times, and he said, who took the pictures? I said, I said, he would hire me. and. But when Henry Wolf went to Show Magazine, which was the precursor of Vanity Fair, he gave me seven pages, I think it was the first issue or something like that. I was startled, so I was just very lucky and uh, and I always thought small scale, see this suits me perfectly. I, I never party, I never network, I never go out. I, you know I love, this is my little nest, it has plants and lots of books and and that's where I like to live, I and mean, we lived in the country, so I'm just pointing out that my lifestyle is really much more, I think I'm much more European in my references. You know, When you think of American photographers, you don't think of me, because I, I deal with literature, you know, and I, I've done a lot of work in France, and then, well, I got a, just got in war from Germany, I'm going to Germany, so that uh And I also, I'm the turn of the century, fantasy at the end of that period, mm-hmm. uh, where so I'm not at all hip and cool, you know. I'm more raggedy Andy.
0: <laughs> but it's—I mean—you often think of, you know, photographers who have great success, sort of suddenly, mm-hmm. as being the kind that network, that really put themselves yeah. out there. Why do you think that those things happen to you? I don't know.
1: I—I I, I think it must be luck, but I—I I never had a, uh, I've never never—I've had people cultivate me for some private reasons, but I've never done that at all. I've just done the work, and, uh, and I get such a deep satisfaction from writing one good sentence.
0: You started doing portraits, yeah. and then started doing portraits for mag- you know, newspapers and magazines, and then your personal work, as far as I know, because yeah. it was sort of the empty spaces in the mid-60s. Yeah, I, yeah and
1: I'm doing a book next year, all, all of them. Uh, and of the with, empty spaces. Yeah, and with an English publisher, and the Harmon. I don't know if you know it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they did my uh, How Someone's called Home Book, mm-hmm. and they're going to do the Empty New York Book. It may be their last book because they're closing that down. But uh, and going through all those pictures I took in 1960, now I knew those. I was in, totally enamored with Aceh, and Aceh was not as common, not as known mm-hmm. as he was today, and it was. Photographing all those empty streets, and I uh, began looking at all of these barber shops and different places, and they all looked like state sets to me. And then I had the instinct to, well, then I could people the state mm-hmm. sets, I could make my own dramas, and then what do I have to say? Who, what? So that opened a whole new possibility, and again, without precedent. And the other thing was that. Um, I was looking at Baltas. I have three great painters who, I have no, my influences are not photographers. the writers and painters, and they are the great, of course, that I spent a week with him in Brussels. Can you believe that? Dreams do come true. Yeah. And then I photographed to who was my big hero, and that was very difficult. And then I also photographed Baltas. I went to uh, in you know, in his chalet. It was his, yeah. I mean, how good is that, you That's know, what, some, if, 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 The
0: dream for sure. Yes,
1: <laughs> and all on my scale, you know, so if I, if, if I wanted to be Richard Avedon, I'm a total failure. And if you know, I, I never wanted a studio, I never, wa- I've never had a studio. I, you know, I, I made a whole career out of this one room. I photographed paradise greens <laughs> on that corner and everything else against this light. You'll see it's the same fireplace. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I've, i actually everything suits me. That's you know what I mean by that. This, the scale of my writing, uh, the intimacy of the, I love intimacy. Um, I think most photographs, those really large photographs. Yeah. Uh, I wrote. I did a little book called. Uh, Photo Follies. Do you ever see it? Yes. Yeah. And I, one of the things I said in there was that, I'm very outspoken. Is that. I never trusted any photograph that was so large it could only fit into a museum. That's not a photograph anymore. That's something, a product made for a museum. There's no other, or s- huge houses yeah. with very wealthy people. So I like photographs. I like Sarah Moon, for example, very much. Mm-hmm. I like the intimacy of her work. I like the references, the theatrical business she does. This, everything is, is, you're looking into a, a, a steal from a, a wonderful mysterious movie made in 1928 or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I like I like those. Those are my references. Uh, photographing empty parking lots in Tokyo. No, 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 no. So I think work should make you cry or you're really sharing something very personal. But to do that, you simply have to have something personal to share and you have to find a vehicle to express it and then you have to figure out what it is. You know, Those are my natural instincts. So I've gone with my natural instincts. But commercially, I've done everything in photography. You'd be surprised. Um, you know, I've done life covers. Uh, I did the Paris collections for Vogue. I did uh, a funny comic strip for Mirabella. We only did three issues.
0: I'll have to find that. Oh, you
1: must, it's very funny. We invented a character named Pret Porter. And it was her adventures. And I did one the one Paris, Collections with Pet Porter goes to goes to Paris because Spy magazine uh, had dispatched uh, a reporter to infiltrate the couture and to discredit it and make it. So my job as Pret Porter was to go and find the spy from Sneak, with Sneak magazine, and we did wonderful thing. Uh, you know, she, she visited us with all the big all the big designers. Uh, I loved Ungaro. I thought his clothes were really—I'm not a fashion person—but I, you know, I mean, I could do fashion picture. I did a the Sandlerman book for the Met, 25th anniversary catalog. And I, and I often get calls from small fashion magazines in Paris to do stories uh, about different things. And uh, I love the challenge of, you know, and I like anything where I could use my imagination like that. Uh, let's see. I've have done campaigns for all the major, you know, uh, companies. Uh, Eli Lilly. You know, I mean, I mean, really. And so, in that sense, I'm the complete photographer. There are those photographers who have done fashion and they're great. You know, and every you scratch every photographer, they want to have a museum show. They're all artists. So they're the ones who made a lot of money in doing all kinds of commercial work, but never had one exhibit. Another photographer who had lots of exhibits but couldn't make a nickel financially, mm-hmm. and my great freedom was because I had no overhead, and I had you know one assistant. I am no landy Leibowitz when it comes to staff. Um, I had, uh, I could live on a small budget, and my private work was all sustained by by my jobs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was. My left hand paid for the right hand. So I created my work to suit me. You know, like the usual trajectory is you become an assistant and then you have open your own studio and then you go after campaigns and stuff. Well, I never did that. Everything was cottage industry. Everything was homemade. You know.
0: It's really inspiring to hear you talk about finding a joy in all of it, yeah, and I making did, it all work for
1: you. I was very proud of my commercial work. I did the Synchronicity album with Sting mm-hmm. and all that. Other people, too, albums. I didn't even know who they were half the time. <laughs> but uh, I always... I, I love the challenge of trying to figure something out. And uh, for me, it's always been the pleasure of the doing. I just did a show, a small show this, year, uh, this summer about uh, Trump. Anti-Trump show.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah,
1: and that was very exciting. Uh, it's it's mostly sculpture. I did one of the sequences of Trump and on and Putin on their first date. Having a sense of humor is very important. The thing that separates me from not only other photographers and other people is I have enormous curiosity. I I read constantly. I'm uh, anxious to, you know, if I like when I read. I read a poem by Anna Akhmatova. It was such a, there were two lines in it that really got to me. She was talking about she was in a gulag someplace, and her husband was in another gulag someplace. And she always loved to look at the moon because she knew that was the very same moon he looked at. Mm -hmm. And that's the only time they could share a moment was sharing the moon. And then I, I, because I always thought about it, that's the same moon that the cavemen looked at. That's the same moon that Cleopatra looked at. You know, so it's a little whimsy like that that I might do a takeoff on. But you know, but if I find a poet, like I love, I have a number of references when I'm writing and I get stuck. I always go read uh, Arthur Rambo mm-hmm. and Illuminations. I just couldn't believe it. he was a piece of sh- shit. That guy, he was really horrible. But the pure genius of what he wrote then, which is still very, very powerful, just. You know, it was gone by the time he was 19, I think. But, and same thing with DiCirico. I loved DiCirico between 1910 and 1919. That's when he had this flowering of pure genius. And I hate to overuse that word, but genius. And he was. And, and then it was gone after 1919. He just you know went on to pretentious work. But there's a certain kind of purity that when somebody writes a very clear line, it's just, you just savor it, you know, everything. I have, a, I, do, I have a new portrait book coming out, and I also like very much Inesco. And uh, he said words to the effect that childhood is over when one ceases to be astonished. And when de Chirico, uh, not de Chirico, uh, he was the Andy Warhol of his time, yeah. he went to visit Diaghilev, and they, they were going to collaborate on a ballet and Cocteau said to uh, Diaghilev, what do you expect, what, you, know, what? you know, like the great, and, uh, and uh, Diaghilev said, astound me. Well, that's it, I don't want to be astounded. I don't want to be bored. Andy World's the most overrated, I, and I knew him, believe me, before he became this Andy, when he was little Andy, a uh, reviste, and that uh, work shouldn't bore you and most photography bores the hell out of me. Some, some people sent me these, well, this, I love doing portraits, and I've, in my new portrait book I'm really talking about, I'm questioning the nature of a portrait, and I've come up with three, I call them three sorts of portraits. One is called stand and stare. Everybody does stand and stare, the passport picture in a dar, you know. And then I have another portrait, which I call the prose portrait, no, a prose portrait is a portrait where you don't necessarily see the person, but it's done in the manner of who he is or what he is. So all my Magritte portraits I would call prose portraits because they're in the manner of Magritte's work. If you mm-hmm. know his work, you can yeah. see it in the thing. Uh, I did a thing with you know Kramer from Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. I did a little sequence with him, but there's a one picture in my portrait book where he's reading a book, Pouring a glass of milk, but he's missing the glass, and the milk is pouring all over the table. Now I could have done this kind of a picture with him, but this is in the nature. So that's what I call the prose portrait. And then there's another one which I call the annotated portrait. And that's where I where I, I picture my mother, my father, and my brother, and then I wrote about their relationships. So I would take the portrait and then write about it, annotated. A little movie we did called Brenda Gets a Boner, which is about you know female relationship changing roles. So the lady I'm meeting meets me and she said, you look down. And I said, well, yeah, because I, my mother died about ten years ago, I haven't thought about her much yet, but I realized I knew nothing about her. I knew her as a mother, you know, ice cream and cozy, and, but you know, was she a bitch? I don't know. My father, they didn't have a relationship to speak of, you know, was she good in bed? I don't know. Was she? What kind of woman was she? Was she jealous? You know, was she? Did she cheat? Yes, that's the answer to that one. So um, I could look at, show you a picture of anybody. Well, there's a wonderful portrait in in the portrait book of my mother. She's just sitting, looking out the window, and there's frost—not frost. There's like on the window, mm-hmm. and you see her face, and she's looking very sad. And the portrait is called "Mother After Father Died." So you know, I think that says a lot. So it's not just reproducing. Anatomy, yeah. which everybody does. It's trying to bring insight. And then the other portrait is a, what I call the imaginary portrait. I did a portrait of, I got an old photograph of Mar- a glamour portrait of Mar- Marlene Dietrich, and then the face I painted is one of Picasso Demoiselle d'Avignon. So um, I got a series of old glamour girl pictures which I was going to repaint mm-hmm. as African sculpture, which would be, I thought would be funny. But, so, well, but I digress. <laughs>
0: so are the portraits mm-hmm. in the book are they called from all the magazine work that you did? Yeah. I found a quote from you from 1975 actually about your portrait work, normally portraits lie people are never that smug or complacent or relaxed or thoughtful, people in my portraits give vent to their real emotions and so their tension or violence or sexual desire or whatever
1: at the best, s- that's very difficult, sometimes But yeah. Yeah, I agree, I think you have to make more demands on portraits than simply reproducing anatomy, I think you become the artist, I hate that word when you bring in—that's it. The talk I was looking for was insight. You have to bring insight into the subject. I, something's happening. We are now at the end of an era. There was that period of daguerreotypes, yeah. you know, when everybody—and then that era closed. And now we're at the end of the—I think I call it the great black and white era—with Brisson and Robert Frank and, and and all these people. I don't see from now on digital and this is going to be a category. And when, when people of my generation die, I don't see any new black and white photographers coming up. I don't see any new, you know, maybe in fashion. And trouble with fashion, and I love fashion. I mean, it's, the basic thing, flaw of fashion is, uh, pe- people get paid a lot of money to make beautiful people look beautiful. I mean, what's the challenge? I've never seen that. And some, when I used to work with fashion, uh, you know, my, I, oh, Vera. poor Vera. She was an assistant in those days with Polly Mellon, who was a real mm-hmm. nut job. And poor Polly really abused Vera. And uh, anyway, but Polly would call up and say, uh, you know, we, we want you to do something. Who would you like? What models would, who would you like? I said, well, who do, who do you have? She'd say, we've got Kiki, we've got Kaka, we've got Cuckoo, and we've got Coco. So i take one of the three. They all walked in looking like like boys. Spend an hour and a half, they end up being startlingly stunning. And I almost had to work against beauty. A woman beyond beauty has to be mysterious. Uh, well, I went to Russia and I arrived at Leningrad. There I was, 28, 26, at, at midnight. Can you imagine from Helsinki? And I, I get in a, an old limousine that they had, and sitting in the back seat with me was this woman who looked like Marlene Dietrich, she, was, she wasn't, but she was all dressed in black. She was gorgeous, she didn't say one word to me, and I'm sitting like this, oh my god, who is this lady, what is she doing here? Fantastic. So I think beyond, I think beauty's too easy. Uh, I think that mystery, I think a woman always has to have a, a, a private presence, not a public presence, and by that, and I know this is code for fashion, but everybody wears big dark glasses, they have long hair, you know. That's, that's the look. But there's something about a woman who, uh, and that's what I try to affect when I would do Paris stuff, uh, they have a sense of, what, what's she doing here? Who is she here? She has to make you want to find out who she is. But if she spills the beans in the first place and just looks like a very expensive, uh, high maintenance woman, no, no. But a woman dressed in just the slightest thing can be so interesting, and has absolutely nothing to do with uh, you know heels uh, this large or anything. But uh, she has to have her own, she has to have her own aura, and that comes from I think a confidence. Maybe she's a writer who, you know, just spends all her time working on her writing, and when she goes out, she doesn't have time to, you know. Do all that, but she, she just throws on some, you know, a very simple old dress or or whatever, you know. But she but she can make it absolutely interesting. Uh, that's the one thing I liked about Deborah Turberville, uh, I used to know her, and Deborah was such a nutshell too. But she, Deborah imagined herself to be. Picture this, nineteen seventeen, uh, the last train out of St. Petersburg for for Paris. And she she's sitting in the back of the train, and she's swapped it in her clothes and the whole thing and she's got her veil and she has the jewels are sewed into and mm-hmm. her her husband, I mean her lover, one of her many lovers, has just been killed by the Bolsheviks, you know, outside of the Battle of Odessa or something, you know. And so there she is fleeing with the last and, and you know but she's got tucked tucked into her someplace private uh, maybe a book of poems by Tolstoy. Don't talk, don't talk. But in It's like you know who was great, like Anna Akhmatova. Mm-hmm. She was that. If you ever read a biography, you know she went to Moscow to Paris, and uh, she was uh, mistress with, uh, or at least I don't know what they did with uh, Modigliani. Uh, you know, and she was, uh, and then she went back, and oh my God, what a life! So that's I, that's what I like. I like that the quality of, of mystery. So if I was doing, you know, if I, if I was doing a fashion shooting, I would I would make her mysterious. I would make a woman sitting in a room like this, maybe over in the corner, you know, reading something privately, or maybe she's looking at something. She's just laughing, whatever she, or maybe she's writing a poem or something. I don't know.
0: Did any of the people that you went to photograph for portraits did they ever have that? Did you ever walk in and know that like this actress or this well, person had that?
1: I love um, Liv Ullman. Uh, And I have a nice picture of her, but it's really about her hair. Oh, another thing is, when you open a portrait book, it's picture, 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 Mm -hmm. picture, 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 and you know pretty much what the next picture is going to look like. This English publisher, French publisher, I might be doing something there, sent me like four of the last books they published. They were all street, stand and stare, street shots of teenage kids. Page, mind deadening. Or like Renica Dixter, she did these pictures of, stand a stare, of, uh, is, and I, I talk about it in my portrait book, of Israeli, young Israeli soldiers. You know, they're like young kids in uniforms. They could have been Dutch soldiers. I, now, what I wanted to know was not what the hell did they look like, who cares what they look like, but what did these teenage Israeli soldiers think of Palestinians? What did they think about the Hasidic Jews, the religious Jews who don't who don't go to the army, that you know are sitting praying all day while they're going to get their head blown off in in uh, Lebanon, you know? So this is what I wanted from them. So I would have done the portraits, and then I would have quoted Sergeant Yakov Bifov said, you know, I hate I hate the Palestinians because you know they murdered, my, you know, but. I want, the, I want the juice, I don't want the yeah. description. Give
0: some depth to it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So then I would have to invent a way of doing that. And when you invent something, that's when you're creative. You, creative means to create something yeah. that didn't exist before. And then photography is very difficult because it's also pre packaged pre-programmed, pre-everything.
0: What do you feel about the way that photography is going now? Because everyone thinks they're a photographer, Great, everyone's yeah, shooting yeah. on their cameras. I agree and it's just all snapshots, how are you feeling about it? Well I, I think it's
1: wonderful they can do that and I think they make great souvenir pictures but they're not art, you know. but they're important. Uh, when, well like you know Fred died and I, f- I found a number of family albums he had and he was in a lot of those pictures when he was a boy which I had never seen in high school and graduating college and everything and those pictures are so important, and I'm sending all the pictures to his relatives, but when there's a fire and they interview someone, they say, well, we got the family pictures. The most important pictures are not in MoMA, they're in your family's album, the picture of your mother. The pictures, I, the Fred's pictures are all over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that They're more, more significant than anything. And so yes, photography, it's the most democratic of all the arts. Everybody can take a photograph. You know, everybody cannot tap dance. Everybody cannot paint. Everybody cannot write. But everybody can take. So of all the arts, and it's fine. You reproduce a wonderful memory. You photograph that day at the beach in Capri, or whatever. You know, that's lovely to have. But there's another dimension to photography, which, which is what I'm interested, in, and that is dealing in the psychological. You know, like being a gay guy. If I look at Bruce Weber's pictures, is just, you know, page after page after page of humpy college boys. And when people say to me, oh, isn't that a beautiful photograph? I said, no, it's an ordinary photograph of a beautiful guy. Or just a, a beautiful woman leans against the wall and does this. Beautiful photograph. No, no. It's an ordinary photograph. It's the beautiful woman that makes the picture. You're not describing the photograph. Yeah. There's no invention, there's no double exposure there, no nothing to him. He just, anybody could have taken that picture with, on those terms you know, of
0: How much did your um, homosexuality, I mean, I know, I feel like going on later in the 70s yeah. and more in the 80s, it became more prevalent. Yeah. How much do you feel like it affected your
1: life? Well, you know, how much did heterosexuality affect your life? It's, 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 but don't forget I'm on another generation. And it oh, was this much oh, more
0: private thing oh,
1: then? much more intimate, and it was much more secretive. You know, love to did not speak its name. Uh, I never, like I'm not a typical photographer in almost in any category. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not a typical gay person. Fred and I were not typical gay people. That's why I hate dislike, not hate Mapleford, because for somebody here, for somebody who was so professionally gay, he had no insight into the subject. You know, he photographed. He did a self-portrait with a whip up his ass. Please, you know, he did him. Himself- there wasn't one picture of two men hugging or kissing. Guys in leather, close close-ups of jock straps. But I want insight. I did a book on Have You ever read mm-hmm. In 1978. It was tense. I don't know if you have ever seen it. I've seen
0: some of the images. Yeah. They, yeah. Know. Well
1: it's about, it's about the nature of, you know, it's about the different kinds of gay, relations really, the father-son relationship which is essential to me. Uh, and it's a picture of, it said, the, the, son, the father died in the morning and the son arrived in the afternoon. That's what happened when me, I came back, I was in BNN, and, like I said, my father died. I, 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 I was too late. Well it's a picture of a dead young old man in bed, you know, he's got a sheet up to here. And then there's a young man sitting there who's lewd and, and he's got two. One hand, he's reaching out to touch the father, and the other hand, he has on his head like this, and it's a, it's a fist. Mm-hmm. So, it's, you know, it's his father, and it said that he, was, he arrived too late. Uh, there's an, all about, there's an old man is reading the palm of a young man, and he's reading, his, you know, and taken in a room like this upstairs. And he says, it said, the father, I could see quite clearly in his poem that there would be a tragedy, but my love could not protect him. See, here's my definition of love love is when the other person's welfare means more to you than your own. And that's why Donald Trump could never love anybody, because there will never be anybody whose welfare was more important. That's the bottom line. I would have done anything for fair, and I did. I mean, you know. Anyway, um, But so these are the issues as a gay person, I would investigate, because I'm not at all interested in the tradition. When, like that chance meeting, which is two men passing each mm-hmm. other. That's essentially a, 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 a gay, Cruise, yeah. two guys walked down the street. It can happen to anybody. You see somebody, part of that ingredient. I was, besides being that, I was in Times Square once. I was walking down the street and I saw this guy and I thought, why do I know him? And so, and I went about a block and I realized I thought he was in the army with me, and I looked like he was gone. And so I see that's the sort of thing I would find interesting to photograph.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's what part of what always attracted me to your work was like the intimate moments and the yeah. fact that even if there was a sort of a homosexual theme, it felt this is the same way that like I approach romance or love and connection
1: with other people. It's not about gender, the yeah. instincts are the same. Being gay is just like I always say, it's just like being straight, except it's different. Yeah. You know, it's love is love. When you fall in love with a guy and I fall in love with a guy, different guy, I hope. Uh, It's a different. It's same love. It's just the and the balance. And I'm very aware now of the difference between men and women and how they navigate life. I have an assistant who's having an ex-assistant who's having a marital problem, very young, and I realize that they talk about two different things. Amazing the misconnection that is. When when he says, you know, I love you, what he's really saying, oh great. Uh, I'm going to have sex, and when she says, uh, I love you, she says, oh great, I'm getting married. No, no, they're saying two different mm-hmm. things, and miscommunication. Straight people bring entirely different agendas to the table. A woman's need after the first child arrives is amazingly different, and all relationships evolve. You know, I call, uh, what do they call that, uh, infatuation? I call that the... Uh, adolescence of love, you know. Anywhere you would go, yeah. I would go with you and, you know. But when love matures, it gets deeper. It's like tea that steeps. It just gets deeper and richer and nuanced. Uh,
0: I mean, you were together for such an amazingly long yeah. time. It's so lucky, like 57 uh, seven years. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah it was, but it wasn't lucky because we made it happen. Yeah. You have to work at. It's like It's like a kaleidoscope. And every 10 years, you know the the needs at 20 are different than at 30, at 40. When you're 60, they're different than when you're 80. They're certainly different than when you were 50. Mm-hmm. So, and every 10 years, you turn the kaleidoscope, and all the pieces rearrange themselves. Yes, you're still in love. Yes, you still have to eat. Yes, you still need to be creative, whatever in you know thing. But they're different. You know, like if I was at my age, still walking, say walking off the camera, photographing street pictures, my God. In the meantime, I've experienced death and war and sexual desires and God knows what, you know, why doesn't that reflect it in my work, you know? That's always bothered me. If not I was amazed when I discovered about the war of 1878 and, and the commune in Paris and mm-hmm. and the terrible things that happened. And, and when you look at the paintings, you don't see any except for Manet. There's one painting on Manet, a man walking down the street in crutches. You had no idea any of that had happened. You have
0: to go read journals from that, people's journals from that time, like the Goncourts or something, to get an idea of what it was like
1: there. Yeah, but you're not going to see it in any of the art. And the other things, I love things Japanese, and uh, I did a whole series of fan paintings based on uh, Japanese fans. Did you know that, uh, uh, Mm Japaneseba, and Gauguin did 23 fan paintings. I, saw, I got a book out of them in Paris. Uh, Van Gogh left 200 uh, Japanese prints. Degas left 75 Japanese prints. And the washerwomen and the people in the cafes, all out of ukiyo e mm-hmm. um, Lautrec even dressed up in a Japanese costume. Uh, Bonard they called the, the, the Japanese nabi. Fouillard, uh, all the patterns, pure Japanese. I discovered this about twenty. I don't know when, but I saw this wonderful book, and I thought, my God, why don't we read about this more in art history? All the Matisse, you know, yellow and pure color, Japanese, mm-hmm. no, 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 uh, what do they call that? No uh, uh, perspective, Japanese.
0: Yeah, art history is very Western centric.
1: Totally, totally. Yeah. But check the sources. I'm very mm-hmm. curious how. What well, like if I there's somebody. I love biographies and I like to read how so-and-so became the person we know. Even Andy Warhol, for that reason, is interesting to me, how he had manufactured creative at Andy Warhol from, you know, uh, Slobock, uh Steelworkers, I don't know what his family did, but you know, and, and he invented this creature, you know.
0: Did you know him in McKeesport no, or just later? I knew,
1: he was four years older than no. I was. He told me, he lied all the time about everything, but he told me he was born in McKeesport and then the family got uppity and he moved to Pittsburgh. But then I met him in New York uh, through a friend of mine who was doing ads for Bond Tellers. And Andy was doing ads. So I knew him. I have all those photographs of him before he became super Andy when he was just little, little Andy.
0: How different was New York then? What do you think about when you came here in the mid, late 50s? Well, well
1: it's essentially the same issues are always here. People get off a bus every day. That's the route, you know. And you get a little portfolio, except it was cheaper in those days, but it was always expensive. It, secret about New York, it's always too expensive. Mm-hmm. We bought this house in 1965 because we didn't want to pay rent. We had a little apartment. I had an apartment on Charles Street, fifty dollars a month. Fred had a lovely apartment. and I was making fifty dollars a week, so we get excited. Yeah, no,
0: I know. It's just the
1: and Fred's apartment was eighty, you no know, seventy-five, and that, that was, and we took a beautiful apartment on 9th Street between Fifth and Sixth, that was Jacqueline Moore Larson's, mm-hmm. if you know who he is. Yeah, of course. It was a gorgeous apartment, and that was two forty a month, which was huge. And after four years, they were going to raise it to two sixty. So we said, no, 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 no. we're not spending <laughs> that kind of money to live here, you know. So that's why we, we bought this place, cause we didn't pay rent, you know, thank God. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's always, young know, people come to the city with ambition. I did the thing for Do Magazine, and I asked to do, I should warn you, I could go on for hours.
0: I I love talking. I'm
1: very opinionated, <laughs> I said that. But um, they were doing an issue on New York and I asked myself, Bruce Davidson, I forget who else, to write a thing about New York and I wrote a little th- a little, did a little sequence called I Dream the Perfect Day in New York. And it's about why do people come to New York? I said, all over America, the talented and the ambitious come here for the rewards of the city. Fame, power, uh, sex, money, you know, and then I have a day where I, all these things happen. And in the end, I have a, a Buddhist kind of moment of when I realize the folly of chasing those things, and understand that rather than chasing what our culture defines to be a value, you know, money, big cars, everything, uh, it was all about the mind and about questioning the nature of life. But, you know, I'm I meditated for twelve years, so I'm am a fake Buddhist. I'm not a professor. I'm a phony Buddhist.
0: Uh, yeah, I'd read that you were into Eastern religions. is yeah. that is that just in the last twelve years, or is that something you've been sort of Well, no, no.
1: I was brought up Catholic, and the first book I bought when I went away to school was Evelyn Underhill's book called Mysticism. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what the hell was in that book. What are they talking about? You know, and all the the chakras and all kinds of things. And uh, and then again, out of my own curiosity, I just kept reading and reading. And so that schools must teach students curiosity. They must teach them. not to get, they have to learn how to assign themselves. And you do that because you have a curiosity. Because once you get out on the street, nobody's gonna hire you, nobody's gonna give a damn, could care less about what you do. And if you don't care enough, yeah. then you you, know, you find your own life.
0: How much do you think that your childhood Catholicism affected you
1: work? Catholicism, I had to unlearn, see I'm an atheist, and I, un- I had to unlearn, first of all, I had to unlearn Christianity. Uh, it's difficult to unlearn things. I call people who are marinated in religion never get over it, and uh, the hardest part is to let go, it's like to let go of a relationship, to let go of an idea that you needed. Well, like say the gay person, you're brought up believing that you're abnormal, you're less than, uh, you know, you're indispensable, you're frivolous, and no, and that you're a sinner and you're going to hell. So. That's the burden. Most. So it's not that, you know, and you know, not that I'm not pretty or whatever. I mean, for a woman there are other issues, you know. But uh, I should show you that movie about against opponent because I talk about a lot of women's issues. I was trying to understand how women navigate life, and I, in a movie, I talk about this girl I knew in high school, and in grade school. And after we graduated, we kept in touch. And then I went back to visit McKeesport. She invited me to dinner with her husband. And we were talking. and When I graduated from grade school, there was an award. It was given to uh, you know the person with the best grades. And I got the award. And so I said to her, Loretta, you were always the smartest person in our class, but they gave me the award. But I said, you should have had the award. And she still remembered and she And then she said something about, yes, but you got the award, and she said when she was a young girl, her mother said to her, Loretta, you know, you're not pretty like your older sister Pat, and um, so you're going to have to be very smart, because you're never going to get a husband. So when she started, she still, she was crying, her eyes moistened. After all these, she was in her 70s, and she remembered that thing her mother said to her. Well. That's the same like being gay, except you've got to remember you're a sissy and you know, and you're useless and uh, you know, anyway. So everybody grows up with something we have to and then learning is criminal. I mean it's almost impossible. All of these things were a process of freeing myself you know, and, 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 and as a gay person, I had to go against people like Maplethorpe. You know. They did an interview with me about him when they did that TV, they did a documentary on mm-hmm. him, but they never used my segment because I was very critical of him. And I said that Uncle Mapplethorpe and people of the, that generation of that style would have considered Fred and me gay Uncle Toms, because we weren't interested in going down Christopher Street and getting fucked by twenty guys in one night. We weren't interested in leather, we weren't interested. We were interested in growing our garden, we were interested in having a life, and, you know, and so we were completely discredited as being legitimate as a gay person in that crowd. But interestingly enough, the hegemony between uh, Christopher Street and West Hollywood is broken. All over America you see people lining up in Iowa to get married. They're not, gay people are not rushing to New York for the rewards for Christopher Street, no. Where we lived upstate, we not a lot of gay guy who's living in the country wouldn't even think of coming to New York. So it's it's been very healthy for the gay world to have this happen, mm-hmm. and to it's been legitimatized in a way. And it's when people know that people in the company knew Fred, and I took I took Fred's ashes to the country, and now that the house is sold, the people he designed the garden, so they let me in, I brought, I brought a a van of friends from New York and all the people from we had a service there and then I I with scattered ashes and uh, and then we had a wonderful dinner a banquet uh, at a re- local restaurant the zone water it was just charming so it, anyway so it, it's, it's changing but there will always be religious people who will always be haters and uh, so. Self- I'm so angry when religious people impose their ideas on people. That's I don't care what you, you want to kiss a horse. I don't. I couldn't care less. But you know, but don't make me have to kiss a horse because you want to kiss a horse. you know, it's ridiculous.
0: And is that also why you have your? have been making these sort of very political works against Trump. Yeah. And yeah, in the 80s, you also did. I always political. did
1: political work. Yeah, I did one piece called Christ in New York. I don't know if you ever saw mm-hmm. it. And where Christ is. Uh, he sees a woman who's had an illegal abortion. He's, you know, he, he, sees a, he sees a hypocrite on television, uh, and all that. You know, uh, yeah. The bottom line is, and I've always said this: is everything is subject for photography, not just the polite sunsets and pretty things and pretty faces. I would tell students, don't show me what I already know. I know what sunsets look like, I know what breasts look like, I know what cars look like. Show me what I don't know. Tell me your secrets. But If you don't have the courage even to tell yourself your own secrets, you know, how could you ever get it? I, I, I do that all the time. And
0: in the mid-60s, you were in a lot of shows with a group of, you know, the photographers like yeah. Lee Frank Freelander, yeah, and yeah. Bruce Davidson. How did you oh, yeah. feel about being sort of lumped together with them yeah. in, you know...
1: Well, that's, that's because in those days I had evolved. You know, I mean, and I had Empty New York, that yeah. his documentaries. So I had been doing that kind of work. But that was before my, my, my personal photographic yeah. vision evolved. So I was, and, and that was the only game in town. Photo world in those days was a very small world. And there were no photo galleries. That came later, yeah. and in the 70s. And John Zarkowski. Ran photog- He was the Louis B. Mayer of photography. Mm-hmm. He created Winogrand. He created uh, Friedlander and also Diane Arbus. They and then he created Eggleston. But they were his. Without Sorkowski, they wouldn't have existed. And he and I got in a moment not because of because I, uh, I, It was because of uh, Peter Bennell who was the assistant and who was pushing for. Museum honor to be modern mm-hmm. and to go beyond. So he was, you know, and what I was doing was innovative, and that's what, that's why he showed me. But
0: because uh, you were in the, in the mid sixties, you were in a show with them called Towards the Social Landscape. Yeah. What did you think of their work at that time?
1: Well, it was it was what photography was then, yeah. according to Moma, and it was a reportage. And all those people, and the crack began when I showed up. And with people like Jerry Ulsman who began to mm-hmm. do uh, very complicated prints yeah. in the in the dark room, he pushed printing. Now it can be done on the computer in five minutes, but he pushed printing in those days all the way. And then I changed it with su- subject matter, and also in the showing six pictures. I used every trick in the book to create effects. And text. did you
0: just experiment, trying yeah. them? You didn't.
1: Well, that well, was the, well. There's that sequence about uh, the man becomes a star in the subway. Mm-hmm. That was. Killer to do because that's double exposures and then the sandwich negatives. and I had a dodge to make sure that it used to kill me to print it. I never did find a printer who could do it as well as I could. Uh, yeah, I, was, I couldn't wait to stop printing when I discovered that I could get a printer, was better than I was. Um, I was out of the dark room. I, never, I wasn't one of those photo purists. That, uh, you know. But I did, for somebody who never went to photo school, I did all the photo tricks in the book you know, every And well, you just I, learned by doing by trying. In that movie we, you saw uh, you know, the uh, Sonambulist, mm-hmm. we did negatives, we did all kinds of tricks, double exposures. We're doing we do a double exposure. But I discovered one day with with Josiah, I said, Can we do double exposures? He said, Yes. <gasps> I have a wonderful movie called one of the first films was called Are You Still a Faggot? It's about a grandfather who ever saw. It's about a grandfather and his young son comes home, and it's done in double and triple exposures, and uh, it's really quite beautiful. So I'm bringing everything I knew from steel photography. that yeah. I could transfer into filmmaking. I
0: mean, yeah, I could definitely see some of the techniques and also mm-hmm. some of the the imagery you used, like mm-hmm. the mirror. Yeah, used the mirror has always been
1: a wonderful thing um, for me.
0: What is it? What in your mind? What is it?
1: Simulate? Well, when I was a kid, I, I was fascinated by mirrors. I loved the idea. I love the idea that there's this parallel world, looking at me and I'm looking at them, mm-hmm. and the idea that you, know, that you could step into a mirror, or you know, Alice in Wonderland, uh, just the whole idea of this. The ma- it's mirrors are magic. Yeah. See, that's what i always liked, the magic and mystery of life, and not the facts of life. We're going to do a book called The Complete Sequences, I've done lots of them, never published, mm-hmm. and some that when I originally did them I thought, oh well it should be better or whatever. But now I look at them and you know they're better than I thought they were, so we'll do that in a couple years. And uh, and there are lots and lots of them that, uh, that, that, that's going to be a wonderful book.
0: How long did each sequence generally take you to put together?
1: It's amazing. Uh, Here's the the way I function. This is my process. If I think it on Monday, I'll have it done by Friday. There are these people who put off and get to there, blah, 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 No, no. I get, I get, I, I generate my own enthusiasm and I really literally cannot wait to see, uh, like when I started working on the assignment for the times about old age and death, mm-hmm. I had one idea and then when I came up with this, we were going into a cab up up to the park and I began to talk about ideas and I suddenly hit upon doing this one, myself. On, my cell phone. I was so excited, you know, I couldn't wait. We had to do it the next day. They didn't get it. And I thought, why are we even bothering with the Shiga? So I generate, see how lean I am? Mm-hmm. It's because I gener- I burn off a lot of fat with my enthusiasm. And it's all self-generated. I never, and I knew, that's the other thing, I knew with a certainty that that's good. Nobody has to tell me it's good. I don't need anybody's approval. I know it's good. And uh, the more unique, it, the more unique, there's nobody in photography can duplicate my imagination. There are a lot of people that can duplicate certain things, certain kinds of photographs, you know, but... I'm very open. I have freed myself to be creative. And only you could do it. I mean, you know, if you're going to say, oh my God, sometimes, you know, what it was, we'll do something and Joseph says, yeah, what was anyway?" I couldn't care less what anybody thinks. If I like it, it suits me.
0: There were definite periods where you had a lot of critical attention from. Yeah. Um, did you ever let that any bother you at all?
1: No, no, uh, no. It's bad Luckily, especially now when my memory's bad. So. I, I pretty, <laughs> I, what did what I say? I don't pay attention. No, no. It's the bottom, it's the act of doing, the making of it, the writing of the sentences, seeing an idea in my head. It's interesting the way the mind works. When I try to solve a problem, when I'm working on something. I love James Joyce, and. I, I start reading James Joyce, usually, and well, I have books I go to, or the Illuminations, mm-hmm. and I'll be reading it, and a word will pop out of the page, and I think that's the word I'm looking for. I'm looking for a word, and that's it. I, I found it. I once wrote in Questions Without Answers. I wrote about beauty, and I said that nature felt so guilty. We're giving human beings, giving our species, such a difficult time. You know, we're the only species in the we're going to die. You know, I mean, it's, we, you know we have a very difficult time, and so nature felt guilty, and so nature gave us the taste of beauty because it felt so, I'll make them enjoy, mm-hmm. find things beautiful, find things lovely, and I thought that that's a conceit, but I love the idea that nature felt guilty, so it gave us the taste of beauty. And then I've written about beauty, but uh, uh, you know what's interesting is that I don't know who in the hell am I to spout this stuff. I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, a philosopher. You know, I'm not a poet. You know, I, I don't know that much about Greek myths. You know, I don't know that much about Shakespeare, who I think is magnificent.
0: The is Always seemed very cinematic, like they, they were are. stills from a film. They are. Why didn't you ever t- t- go into film at the time?
1: It wasn't appropriate. First of all, I couldn't make a film as easily in those days. Making a film was an event. You mean you had to have systems. I'd be. Lo- it's a, It was a big deal. Now we can make a film with a little. When I discovered two years ago talking to Osire that we could make a film with a 35 millimeter camera, that was it. Mm-hmm. You know. And then it's like reinventing the wheel. I found out all kinds of things that we could do. And then it opened up. I started reading biography of Charlie Chaplin and looking at early movies. I got this wonderful book of stills from early Chaplin films. It was thrilling. I was reading about French cinema, Lumiere, Melies, and Lumiere brothers, Pathé. Uh, so that's what I—I I generate my own enthusiasm. I literally do. And if I, when I when I found Russian constructivists in Tatlin and I just bought every book I could find on it. And that's what I do if I discover something. You know, I'll read everything they wrote or I'll, and it's been, that's what I've done all my life. But see, I never, nobody had to assign it to me. It's all for my own instincts. And I know young people who wanna do projects and they'll say, well, here's my idea. I wanna flood Times Square. And then I want 100 white horses to come splashing just as the sun is rising. And then I want a nude woman to run through the horses yelling. Please. It's not going to happen. So people come up with these grandiose ideas. No, my idea is I go to an empty apartment and I hear a woman crying. And I come in and I don't know what, who is she? Is that my mother? Is that, is that the straight woman I should have married? Who is she? Is she my guardian angel? And I go to another room and there are these young guys wrestling. Is it my gay instincts? Is it about the violence between men? It was about when I was a kid and the fight I had with a kid once. I don't know. And I go to another room and there's my father. I love the conceit of talking. Well, it occurred to me that I never, if my father and I had been in high school, we never would have liked each other. We never would have been friends. We never would have gotten along. And the idea that I would run into my father when he was younger than when he was 24, and to ask him, well, did you love her? No, I wanted to fuck her, you know? I mean, that's. I think that's that's the whole thing right there. Can you imagine, you could do a, a whole film just having a conversation with your dead father, mm-hmm. and ask him a real question like, things I never asked him. You know. One of the best assignments I ever had was photographing the entire ballet at, at Saratoga one mm-hmm. summer. So I drive every day over and photograph the, every single person in the valet, that was great. Um,
0: yeah, I love the valet the photos I've seen of yours, like the Balanchine yeah, one. all that stuff, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: I was very lucky. Uh, I, I never had a contract with Vogue. I, you know, yeah, it, I was
0: wondering, because it did seem like you would consistently work for them I worked the for years. them a lot,
1: but I never had a contract with Claude de And And um, I loved any assignment came my way, and so I had a great deal of latitude. And I had a wonderful deal where I would, I could, they'd call up and say, oh, uh, let's see, uh, Robert Altman's in town. Uh, he's free between three and four. Can you manage to get a, go up and get a portrait? And I'd do it. So I would only get paid for the pictures they actually used. Mm. And so the other pictures, you know, I just accumulated all these portraits, which was really worked by them at ultimately. Yeah. And that day you could take your portfolio. I, took, I couldn't believe it, I took my portfolio. In fact, I still have the original portfolio of—and uh, it's funny because Andy, everybody did small prints, so Andy said, do large prints, so I did 16 by 20s which was very mm-hmm. big at that point, uh, and then you could actually meet the art director. So I left my portfolio to Condé and and I get a phone call from Lieberman's secretary, Mr. Lieberman would like to see you. And I went in and he was so charming, it was just a scarily— he was like a sleazy con man from Monte Carlo or something, but very charming. And uh, he said, I want to work with special projects with you. And I didn't hear from him for about six months and then I suddenly got special projects. And one thing led to another and I just kept giving me more opportunities to do things. And I've done everything. There's nothing that I've... I have no bucket list. There's nothing I haven't done that I want to do. You know. I've been to Alaska. Worked, photographed the Olympics for the Mexican government, advertising in sixty-eight and you know, Paris collections, and you know, lots and lots of stuff. And uh, and things would come my way. And I, you know, like I got a call from the Times. They said we want to do a book of interiors of libraries of interiors. Uh, have you ever done interiors? I said, oh yeah. And it said, you know, and they they, and I did a book, and that's how I learned. To light interiors and then I would get jobs from you know house and gardens to do something I always felt the m- the more things I could do the more way if I could only do portraits that's one way to make a living but if I could do interiors that's another way if I could do ads for
0: and you always just learned on the jobs
1: I, I learned everything on the job
0: so any you- because you did commercials as well
1: yeah but I learned everything on in mm-hmm. doing and uh I never said no. (laughs) You should learn something from every assignment. It's easy to fall in the comfort of the familiar, and you'll never never grow.
0: Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Dwayne Michaels. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with fashion designers, TV producers, models, directors, and more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. I'm going to close this out with a final piece of advice from Dwayne Michaels. See you next week.
1: Take risks. Life is very short. You may not realize it, but it really is, and you should have no regrets.